Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to the second season of the Vimy Foundation's podcast, Beyond the Ridge, a series promoting the history of Canada's contributions related to the First World War. My name is Melanie Ying, and I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto. As we are discussing a war shaped by imperialism and imperial powers overseas, it's also important that we confront Canada's own colonial past and present. As a settler, I'm recording this podcast in Toronto on the ancestral lands of the Wendat, Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and Anishinaabeg Nations. Today, we have the pleasure of hosting Professor Bodan Cordon, historian and professor of international relations in the Department of Political Studies at St. Thomas More College. Professor Cordon is an expert on Ukraine-Canada relations, Ukrainian internment, and constructions of the enemy alien during the First World War. As he discusses in his recent article, First World War Internment in Canada, Enemy Aliens and the Blurring of the Military-Civilian Distinction, State Policies and Laws Forced the Total Militarization of Society. This militarization blurred the lines between civilian and military spheres. And while many citizens became tools in the service of war material factories, the state designated other ethnic groups, like Ukrainians, as enemies of the nation. Interned similarly as prisoners of war, or interned similarly to prisoners of war, and forced to hard physical labor in remote frontier camps, Ukrainians were accused of being hostile to the welfare of the country. And as the Canadian government deliberately obscured designations of civilian, enemy alien, and prisoner force subjectivities, protective rights that should have been allotted to Ukrainians by the Hague Convention were made purposefully ambiguous. Entitlement to basic human rights were suspended. Today, stories of Ukrainian internment and the extent of human rights violations are still not well known by many Canadians. But before we meet Professor Cordon, I'd like to talk with our other special guest, Sarah Talk. Sarah was awarded the 2021 Vimy Pilgrimage Award earlier this year, and she lives in Conception Bay, Newfoundland, and is very passionate about history. Today, she'll be talking about the participation of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment in the campaign of Gallipoli. Hi, Sarah, welcome. How are you today? I am doing amazingly. It's super awesome to be here. <laughs> Excellent. So let's just jump right in then. So today, like I said, you're talking to us about the Newfoundland Regiment at Gallipoli. Um, would you like to introduce first the history of this regiment? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, before I get into like the nitty gritty of it, I should point out that Newfoundland and later Labrador was not yet a province of Canada in the First World War. Our confederation didn't occur until 1949. So officially it was called the Dominion of Newfoundland and our island was a separate colony to Canada entirely. That's why the battalion was known as a British group and not Canadian. So on the evening of August 4th, 1914, Walter Davidson, the governor of Newfoundland received a cable informing him that the British empire was at war. A few days later, Davidson wired London back to say that Newfoundland would raise 500 men for land service, which was quite an amount for such a small colony but enough men soon volunteered that this goal was reached quickly, even though the island had not possessed any formal army organization since 1870. The Newfoundland Regiment came into existence that September with 537 members. And these men became known under a special name, the Blue Petits. They got this moniker since no khaki colored wool was available at the time to match their uniforms. So their leg wrappings, their petits, were a distinct navy blue. On October 3rd, 1914, they completed training and boarded the SS Florizel. Their destination was England, and then they were sent to Turkey. So on to Turkey first, not France like you might expect. And nope. I think although most of us have already heard about the Battle of beaumont um, it's a little known fact that Newfoundlanders also participated, as you're going to teach us about, the Gallipoli uh, campaign. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Of course, yeah. Um, for the Newfoundland Regiment, it was a, a big baptism by fire. Their first real campaign in what is widely believed to be the worst battle conditions of the war, even worse than, say, Passchendaele. Um, 1,076 Newfoundlanders came ashore along the Dardanelles Strait on September 19, 1915. Uh, the British Admiralty thought that the Ottoman Empire was the weakest part of the Central Powers, but they really couldn't have been more wrong because the Turkish resistance was a very well executed affair and the terrain was almost nightmarish to attack. The temperatures soared to well over 37 degrees in the shade during the day, but at night, the temperatures dipped below freezing. 
And due to the absurdly high amount of casualties, some 213,000 British and 250,000 Turkish, um, thousands of bodies were left to rot in the hot sun for weeks. And that bred millions upon millions of corpse flies. The men could not eat or drink without ingesting the insects, and each soldier was only provided a single pint of water or sometimes less a day for washing, shaving, and drinking. So really that meant no one shaved or washed, lest they wanted to succumb to dehydration, which happened even, even though they tried to save their water. All of this culminated in creating a land perfect for the breeding of disease and lice. Almost no soldier was left untouched, whether it was by dysentery, cholera, tuberculosis, typhus, gangrene, trench foot, or the millions of pests that lived in their coats or their blankets. It was just a, a horrible existence all around. But despite the horrendous conditions, the Newfoundlanders proved themselves to be adaptable, tenacious, and keen here. They achieved their first battle honor, the capture of Caribou Hill. Under the cover of darkness, eight men set out to capture an enemy sniper post atop Borders Knoll, and the ambush succeeded. All the snipers in the next were killed, and the position was held until the line could be consolidated. So Borders Knoll was renamed Caribou Hill to honor the Newfoundlanders that captured it. And then the decision at the end was made on the 23rd of November to evacuate the peninsula because the whole campaign was a failure for the British. The last of them left Cape Hells on the 10th of January, 1916. Wow, so unrelenting conditions, horrible, horrible mm. ways to live or have some sort of way of living while fighting at the same time but also an incredibly significant battle honor for Newfoundlanders. So how, how well documented are these events? Are, are they very well known? Did Canada create any special archives or memory projects? Or did um, Newfoundland, I should yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. Um, for uh, up until uh, Beaumont Hamel happened, um, it was extremely well documented, especially at the time because this was the first time the Newfoundlanders had ever seen war, ever. So, but even after Bonwell Hamel happened, um, the rooms are our, our provincial archives, I should say here. Um, they have a section on the Gallipoli campaign in their museum, which I highly recommend if you're ever in St. John's to come see, because it's amazing. But other than that, we kept letters from the front lines and we conducted interviews with soldiers after the fact and even some photos from the front lines survived if you wanted to look them up afterwards. Um, so for like the letters and the interviews, like a good example would be uh, Major General D.E. Cayley spoke about the Newfoundlanders arrival. There were concerns that this, this so-called ragtag group of fishermen, students, and merchant sons would be rather undisciplined and rowdy because we didn't have like a military group. But according to Kaylee, um, indeed at first, when they eventually took over the trenches on their own, they naturally fell far short of what that stern disciplinarian, the divisional commander expected of them, but the regiment showed itself as keen as could be. And then another source was the many letters that Private Francis Lind wrote throughout the campaign that he sent back home to his family. And he sadly did not survive the war, but his words did. He wrote of life in the trenches and how the Newfoundlanders had to adapt quickly. He wrote that it was, a great, it was greatly to the credit of Newfoundland the ways our boys behaved under fire. One could think that they were old soldiers. And then the little testimonies like these help us to form a much better picture of the life at Gallipoli for these men. Yeah, and I think the fact that there are so many personal documents that survive and that are collected mm -hmm. in one place just makes remembering the event and the people really just so much more, more meaningful rather than just, you know, reading after action reports. Um, and what we're getting is a very personal kind of picture of many young men just growing up far, far too quickly. Um, we've talked a lot about, you say, uh, you were saying the Newfoundland boys going, but um, were there any other people from other parts of, I guess, what we would know as future Canada, present day, or at the time, present day Newfoundland that were also at Gallipoli? 
Uh, yeah, there was way more than just soldiers there because we we simply cannot forget the nurses and the doctors that were stationed at Gallipoli too. They were all in ships offshore because the coastline was so rocked and steep that they couldn't really set up a permanent medical center. So anyone gravely injured had to immediately be taken off to the ships. And um, a great example of one of the nurses is Laura Gamble. Um, because she served in the Mediterranean during the war and kept an extensive record in her diary. Um, uh, I have a direct quote from her writings here. Uh, we arrived early, right in the midst of things. We got a splendid view of the trenches, dugouts, and large guns, and they were too firing from the sea, and we saw huge shells exploding, shrapnel, aircraft, and the booming of the big guns kept us all somewhat nervous. At night, the searchlights kept playing all about we took on about 600 patients a day. So it's just something to think about of how often they were just gunned down and had to be taken out. And uh, Laura Gamble also served in Greece later on. And she has such an incredible story about everything she saw because she obviously had a lot of respect for her patients and the way she wrote about them. And while the Gallipoli campaign might've been a failure, and that's why oftentimes we don't talk about it, um, it shaped the course of the Newfoundland Regiment and turned those scared boys into battle-hardened men um, because they were just about to be sent to Bomo Hamel. And I think we all know what happened there. So it is partially responsible for the Newfoundland that we know and love today. So we should honor it and remember it just as much because while there were other battles and while so many things happened in that war, this was the beginning. This was the start of when we all realized that this war might last a little longer than Christmas time. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's such a great insight that you give where we have to, you know, not just think of significant battles, but really put them in, in, in larger scales and perspectives of, of the entire war. Because the war isn't just a battle and then nothing and then another battle. It, it goes on and on and on. And I think um, in popular conscious, at least, we, we forget that a lot, especially so many years later. Um, so thank you so much, Sarah, for teaching us about uh, the Newfoundland Regiment and the Battle of Gallipoli, um, a part of what would become uh, Canadian history even before yep. Newfoundland. Um, was officially considered Canada or officially decided to join Canada, um, I should say instead. Um, so let's switch gears now to talk about another group of people for, um, for who very different reasons were not considered necessarily Canadian during the First World War either. Um, I'm talking about Ukrainians and Ukrainian Canadians. Um, so wel welcome Professor Cordon. We are very lucky to have you today. Um, how are you? Fine, thank you. Pleasure to be here. We're so we're so lucky to have you here. Um, so let's let's again let's jump right in. Um, let's start a little bit before the war. Um, what can you tell us about Ukrainian history of immigration to Canada, and maybe what were some of the most important Ukrainian communities uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century? Yeah, um, <clears throat> Ukrainians had come to Canada uh, in the latter half of the nineteenth century, specifically in the last decade, and as part of the um, large push uh, to populate the prairies, the immigration policies uh, and homesteading policies of the government of the day. And uh, the intent was in effect to populate uh, the prairies with essentially individuals who could settle land, work the land and make the land productive, if you will. Um, so the, the government of Canada had um, embarked on um, the program of, of uh, attracting immigrants. And uh, one of the places that uh, they were keen on uh, was Austria-Hungary, Austria uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And specifically in the sort of the peripheral regions of the empire, uh, in areas which is coincident with sort of modern day Ukraine, at that time was a crown land called Galicia as well as Bukovina, two, two crown lands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And they attracted uh, migrants from, the, from, from that area to, to Canada. And uh, for the most part, they, they, they settled in um, what is called the East Block Settlement, which is a wide swath of land from sort of west of Edmonton uh, on towards Winnipeg. And it followed essentially um, the Aspen, Poplar Belt uh, 
um, and uh, cut across uh, the three Prairie provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Uh, most of these people, in effect, uh, as homesteaders, uh, of course, uh, uh, settled in these rural areas. Uh, it's made for isolation and, and um, for lack of a better word, I suppose that not only isolation, but sort of an a inward looking sort of uh, mentality amongst these people as their, their entire preoccupation was trying to fulfill the obligations of homesteading, which is 160 acres, but you had to cultivate it uh, in a period of three years. And so the, the push was on to, to uh, work the land as quickly as possible. But it meant that most families uh, tended to be working in isolation, uh, although the nature of immigration patterns at the time saw many of the same people from the same villages or same districts sort of in close proximity settling. Uh, and that sort of accounts for sort of a deep network that begins to appear in the late 19th and early 20th century among, among sort of these settler communities. Um, the kind of a self-help system came about that necessarily allowed for these people to work together, to share their uh, share their sort of um, their skills, their needs, uh, uh, fulfilling their needs, and and the like. Um, so, in some res respect, what's so interesting about this is that you begin to see this sort of the formation of an ethnic identity. Uh, Ukrainians uh, being part of um, sort of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but also the Russian Empire, um, had been a colonized people. And with that, they tended to identify with regional identities. Uh, so they saw themselves as Bukovinians or Galicians, but not necessarily Ukrainians. And this activity on the prairie began to see the formation of an ethnic identity. Um, and in that sense, you see uh, this being played out, uh, a double-edged sword, the consolidation of ethnic uh, community, but also reinforces that inward-looking perspective of, of working together, but in isolation from the rest of society, Canadian society. Yeah, I think I think that's so interesting that you bring up um, initial kind of more more identification with with your, I guess, what might be thought of as your home locality. Um, in my own research with Chinese immigrants, I see I see that as well. You know, migrants only become homogeneously Chinese, or as you're saying, homogeneously Ukrainian once you are in the the new place, the new space, and and people already there. You know, they don't know the difference. Um, but but what 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 you've uncovered for us is a very very different picture. Um, so fascinating. Now you know uh, you noted that. Ukrainians are living quite isolated, though not unconnected, because there is ethnic identity building, there is community. Um, but I'm also curious, what, what were some of their interactions like when, when they did maybe um, meet or run into other, other settlers who are in Canada who are not Ukrainian? Yeah, I, I think that the nature of that settlement pattern allowed for this kind of isolation to occur. Um, but the, the general sort of 19th century perspective was for their eventual assimilation. Um, and you see the dominant cultures at the time, whether it's the Anglo-Canadian culture that really sort of uh, spoke of the importance of finally assimilating these people into mainstream society. So you have this kind of interesting dynamic occurring both. Um, they are isolated, but at the same time, there's this this uh, desire for them to be assimilated. So you see already government policies, um, certainly in the early 20th century about the importance of eliminating sort of in terms of language acquisition, uh, uh, ensuring that bilingualism, uh, there is a push for sort of bilingual education that it would necessarily be um, suppressed um, and so on and so forth. So it was a really huge uh, push towards uh, having these people assimilated. But having said that, there was also a kind of skepticism about the potential uh, assimilation of these people. Could they be assimilated? And so you see this sort of um, contradiction of sorts, the need to assimilate, but at the same time, uh, there's a laissez-faire attitude, which is live and let live. As long as they were sort of uh, segregated and isolated and there wasn't the kind of inter-ethnic contact, then you're then the majority of the population was prepared to just simply ignore them. Uh, 
they lived um, uh, they lived their own lives independently of what was going on in main main um, in mainstream society, if you will. Um, but that, in many respects, sort of speaks to some of the larger difficulties associated with in Canadian society, which is having attracted all of these immigrants. How do you bring them into Canadian to, into the building of Canadian nation? Yeah. You see this sort of skepticism, whether in effect um, that this was even possible, if you will. And you're beginning to see at the early 20th century, as you have literally hundreds of thousands of these people coming in from Eastern Europe and South, South, Southern, uh, Southern Europe, um, 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 whether in effect uh, it was even possible to integrate them. So it begins to sort of speak to the notion of values, the cultural impress of these people coming and whether in effect it was keeping Canada uh, back or, or sort of retarding their, their you know, Canadian progress and development and so on and so forth. So you're beginning to see uh, this kind of uneasiness, and it really spills into the beginning of the debates around immigration in the early 20th century, which is the nature of liberal immigration policies at that time uh, was wrongheaded, and that they needed to revisit this. And part of it has to do with sort of all of this playing out in the context of sort of sort of imperial identities that were very much part and parcel of Canadian. Canadian uh, national identity, political identity, cultural identity, social identity, this idea of, uh, of Canadians being, of course, British subjects, and as British subjects being sort of um, the bearers of uh, civilizational norms associated with, with Britain, uh, and as a result, uh, very much at odds with the po possibility and prospect of, their, uh, of the, uh, the assimilation of these people. Right. Yeah. So it's what it sounds like is a it almost sounds like like Canadian government didn't didn't quite know what to do with this group of people. All of a sudden, once well, they got the settlers that they wanted, but all of a sudden, it's kind of a are these the settlers that that we want? And it it sounds like a kind of tension, a expectation, reality kind of kind of situation. And and, and you mentioned um, Canadian identity, you know, being very tied to British Empire and and, and imperialism, and of course. As, as, as we start going through that early 20th century, we have you know, overseas political uh, conditions changing. We have, we have changing British imperial relations with, with other nations in Europe. And of course, I'm talking about the, you know, the, the beginning of the First World War. So, so what changes um, you know, when the First World War comes in terms of how government or other people in society are, are suddenly uh, viewing Ukrainian immigrants, viewing Ukrainians already there. Um, how do we how do we get from the beginning of the First World War to what eventually amounts to internment? Sure. Uh, so we have this tension uh, that exists before the war, and uh, with the outbreak of war, there is uh, this kind of global context to consider, and the global context is uh, sort of the British Empire uh, and Canada's role within. Within uh, within imperial structures, but more importantly, in terms of um, the wider defense of the empire, and um, so what you begin to see is that this fixation with sort of British imperial identity, which was always there to begin with, takes on a new kind of meaning in the context of, of war, and this necessarily places Ukrainians and others uh, at, at a disadvantage. Those that were seen to be non-British that it had no uh, historical connection or didn't share the same kind of cultural experiences that sort of uh, Anglo-Saxons did. So the distinction was generally made between the Northern so-called races versus Eastern Europeans or Southern Europeans and so on and so forth. And so those from those areas, not least of which are the Ukrainians who had migrated in the late 19th and early 20th century were now at a distinct disadvantage. What do I mean by this precisely? Well, war conditions exacerbated problems with the economy, and those who were thought not to belong were discriminated against economically. Uh, in effect, they were the first to be fired and last to be hired. And this had to do with the shift in the war economy. You're beginning to see mass unemployment occurring, not just prior to the war, uh, so there was a recessionary uh, cycle, but with the with the war's outbreak, you're beginning to see industry sh sort of shift and pivot towards uh, providing for, for the war. And so what you're seeing is the dislocation of the economy and the importance of 
of um, hiring one's own. Uh, and, the, and in this regard, you're beginning to see the, the, the idea of British identity and British imperial identity specifically taking a sort of a, a center, central, playing a central role in all of this. And Ukrainians uh, and others uh, are on the out. Uh, specifically in the context of war, you're, you're seeing uh, those from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, as well as from Germany, but elsewhere as uh, Bulgaria, the Ottoman, Ottoman port. Uh, were beginning to be identified as essentially uh, aliens uh, from belligerent countries, aliens of so-called enemy origin. Wow, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I, I, I grew up in Ontario learning First World War and Canada history, and I've never heard it untold from this perspective. And I, and I think it, it, it's so much more interesting when, we're, when we don't just think of the war in isolation, but truly take seriously the economic factors um, and, and how in the context of war, um, management of immigrant populations like Ukrainians, where, where it seems, or I, I think what you're describing is identity politics being tied up with, you know, really a management of, of labor surplus. Um, so that's, that's so interesting. Now, now, you started also talking about um, enemy aliens and this term enemy aliens. So can you tell us more about the, the construction of enemy aliens? Um, in your article, you've written on on blurring of a military civilian yeah. uh, distinction. So can you can you tell us maybe more about the, this process, this project to blur it? Sure, um, I'll back up a bit and sort of, uh, so you see these individuals uh, uh, who are identified through a proclamation as individuals uh, from belligerent lands that were deemed to be um, enemy aliens or aliens of enemy nationality, if you will. And, uh, they were subject ultimately to war measures. Uh, and the proclamation necessarily identified these individuals as, as potential enemies. Uh, in the age of mass mobilization, this sort of stood to reason and, and most states began to implement these kinds of security measures, what is essentially known to us uh, as the War Measures Act, if you will. And the War Measures Act introduced for security measures and there was a need to sort of staunch the exodus of individuals who might join the colors overseas and the like, but for the most part, uh, it was a fairly sort of uh, innocuous legislation, but at the same time, uh, it was colored by this idea that somehow you couldn't trust these people. They were, after all, aliens of enemy origin. So in this sense, sort of the proclamation stipulated, as long as you didn't act on your so-called allegiances, and it was presumed that your allegiances lay, lay elsewhere, obviously you weren't British, therefore you, you held your allegiance with another sovereign, that you were liable to be interned, if you will. The importance of the War Measures Act, however, was that it gave sweeping emergency powers to the government. And so you're seeing this tied to the economic question of mass unemployment among this group, if you will. There was mass unemployment everywhere in the country. But what you're beginning to see from a government perspective is the ability to use these security measures in order to deal with the economic problem posed by at least this demographic a fairly large demographic that had the potential of destabilizing the war economy, the creating social unrest, so on and so forth. Um, and so you're beginning to see uh, uh, in terms of uh, the this construction of enemy alien, this idea that these are individuals who didn't belong, for one. Um, uh, they were, were being targeted by the government. Uh, and uh, the, generally the public was receptive to the idea that in effect that these individuals, if they, uh, they were seen to be a liability, can and would be interned. So were Ukrainians the only community that was, that was seen this way, the only community that was, that was blamed for economic issues and, and labor surplus, or are there other communities at this time as well? Um, and if so, um, are they are they treated the same way, or 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 is there a different, I guess, government policy? Yeah. Uh, so the majority of those that were interned came from the Austro-Hungarian Empire primarily, and that had a lot to do with the fact that uh, the majority from that part of the world were unnaturalized. They had come in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. This this moniker of enemy alien was a catch-all for anybody who came from Austria-Hungary, if you will, and were part of the minorities from the from the uh, the periphery of the empire. So it included Croats, Poles, and, and other Czechs uh, uh, and the like. Uh, very few 
Austrians uh, of Austrian nationality were actually interned because there wasn't the, the kind of migration, if you will. The Germans, on the other hand, large numbers of migrants in the mid 19th and late, uh, in late 19th century, uh, there were approximately 400,000 Germans, there are 200,000 roughly Austro-Hungarians, but they didn't constitute the majority of those interned and largely because they were for the most part naturalized. Um, but you, you also see in some respects that they were, uh, there was a, um, a, a cultural distinction that was being made as a so-called part of a civilized uh, or part of a civilization, a German civilization, uh, those individuals who were arrested and interned, in effect, were placed in so-called, were treated as first-class prisoners and placed in various camps that were non-working. What it was important here is that those that were from the periphery of the empire, they tended to be laboring class, working class, unemployed. And so the, you beginning to see the creation of, of labor camps, uh, uh, internment camps as labor camps, and these were necessarily placed on the frontier. In, in keeping with Hague re regulations that these individuals were to be uh, were to be out placed in, in camps that were uh, would not expose them to public humiliation and so on and so forth. So what you're seeing is that these camps are being created in the in in the, on the frontier. But there was a reason why it was created on the frontier, and that is, of course, is that there was a clear appreciation that what you had here was internment labor that could be used in the development of public works projects. And so these frontier camps were placed where in close to pro proximity to where the government, federal and provincial governments had a desire to use the, this uh, indentured labor on public works, road building uh, primarily, but other, other work as well. Yeah, and I, I have to ask too, um, I, I know you're a, a, a professor of, of political science um, and I study you know, social history. So um, I, I'm always wondering, so how does, how do these um, work projects, how does this, how is this internment received by the public? Are they in favor? Um, do they know much about this at all? You know, it, it's interesting. So these, these frontier camps, work camps, uh, were established in places like Banff, Jasper, Yohob, uh, and like some of them were very isolated, Mara Lake, um, uh, which is in the BC interior, Revelstoke and the rest. Some of these places were fairly isolated, but some of these places were also fairly accessible to large urban centers. I mean, Banff, close to Calgary. And then what you did, what you saw was day trekkers coming through and sort of and, and staying the night uh, um, in tents provided by the military uh, in close proximity to the camp. And what you're seeing, especially in these reports, that were published in the newspapers, how these individuals, in effect, um, had uh, a, 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 their curiosity uh, did not extend to the prisoners. They were, of course, uh, sort of taken in by the majesty of the mountains and the like. But in effect, they just saw these individuals behind these the, uh, the wire as prisoners of war, as individuals who, in effect, were there for a reason. And, it, and, it, and for the much of the public, there wasn't very much appetite into knowing more about these individuals, that they were in effect once their neighbors. Um, and uh, the upshot of this, of course, is the sort of uh, the war um, progressed and you're beginning to see one year go to, to extends to second year, third year, fourth year, and there is a, um, a visceral reaction against these people that were interned and enemy aliens generally. Uh, there's calls for the mass internment of enemy aliens, literally, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of individuals, which was in effect um, um, rejected as a, as a policy option because in effect, as others who were advisors to the government said it would be too difficult to actually undertake. But in the end, uh, there was this kind of reaction and, and you find in local newspapers about how these enemy aliens who were interned had to be dealt with more uh, stringently, uh, more harshly. Uh, they needed to understand the bitter sting of, of, of war by ensuring that, as I think one of the papers, uh, by working out their, uh, their spleen on good Canadian stumps. Uh, I think Craig and Canyon, Banff newspaper. So we're, we're talking about how, you know, as the war goes on, the public is tired of war, the public wants Ukrainians, as you were saying, to, 
to feel punished, to take on the punishment that they think that they deserve for, for the war going on, for things happening in Europe. Um, so what are conditions like in these camps? And now that I think of it, did they change from the beginning of the war to the end of the war, given the shift in kind of public opinion? Well, there are two phases to, to the internment uh, uh, sort of story. And the first phase has a lot to do with sort of ensuring that these individuals were brought uh, into this camp system and that they would be working uh, largely under, under military guard. And because these work projects were being sort of administered um, in such a way that uh, governments would benefit from them, there was a sort of economic considerations began to prevail. So there was close monitoring to ensure that work schedules are being met, quotas being met, austerity measures were being introduced. So there was a constant the constant complaint was hunger uh, and, and brutality, the idea which is in effect making them work harder. So you had pistol whippings, um, uh, strapado, which is the hanging uh, of prisoners by their wrists so over their head. Um, bayonetting was not un uncommon. Uh, and this is all acknowledged in the official reports. And although uh, you know, the military, the, the, uh, the director of internment operations and, and generally the militia try to, um, to curtail some of this uh, and try to adhere to the uh, army manual on, on the conduct of um, directed at prisoners of war, you're in the frontier. And there is this pressure to have them work. And so you begin to see this extraordinary abuses. By mid-1916, 1917, the first phase of this, uh, this, uh, this internment operations winds down because what you're seeing is a huge demand on the part of industry to fulfill sort of the, uh, the requirements of war. So they're looking for labor and you're seeing that companies uh, begin to pressure internment operations uh, and the Ministry of Justice uh, to release these people and bring them back. So at one time they were let go by these companies and now they're being brought back. And, and there was, of course, uh, external pressures. Uh, Germany, um, surprisingly enough, one of the important sort of uh, aspects of Canada's relations with Germany was, in effect, the, the treatment of, of war prisoners or civilian, uh, civilian prisoners of war. And Germany objected to the treatment of these people and, in effect, threatened retaliation. Britain interceded in, 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 you know, as a way to ensure that British uh, prisoners of war would not be mistreated as a result. But the point in all of this is that they, the government saw the utility of, of how war measures could be used to deal with problems. And so what you're seeing after in the second phase of internment is the idea that you can get rid of people. Um, Put them in these camps and eventually uh, see them either deported or repatriated, as the case may be, at the end of the war. So you're beginning to see the consolidation of these camps of individuals who are considered undesirables, individuals who in effect had shown during their detention, their internment, uh, their resistance to authority and the like. And these were seen as individuals who would not make for good Canadian citizens, never could, never would. And so the question here was to consolidate them into several camps that became holding stations for these individuals. And then you begin to see the importance of arresting people on the basis of their political views. Uh, you're seeing labor activists, individuals in effect who were um, being arrested because of um, um, seizure of literature or so on and so forth. And you're beginning to see uh, at the uh, 1917 all the way to 1919, the rest of of hundreds of these individuals were brought into these remaining internment camps as the labor camps began to shut down. Okay, so there's a difference then between labor camps and internment camps, and then somewhere well, they, along they the were line, all, it, it gets a bit blurry or? Yeah, they, they were internment camps, uh, but, they, but uh, since they were occupied by second class prisoners of war, these individuals can and would be made to work. That was the sort of provision that was, uh, that was provided for under okay. uh, the Hague rules, if you will, which is prisoners of wars could be could work, but for their but for their own hygiene, for their own uh, welfare, if you will. So this idea that they would be they would do fatigue duties. But the in interesting thing about this, however, is that these weren't bona fide prisoners of war. These were individuals, in effect, who were non-combatants, and the Hague regulations, in effect, were silent about how to treat how to treat civilian prisoners of war. And so the government used this opportunity to, because there's kind of lacuna in law, 
use this this uh, this uh, this silence, if you will, to uh, ensure that these individuals would work. And so th these camps are internment camps, but they are primarily on the frontier and and serving as labor camps, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then you have these other camps, which were in these urban centers where Germans were placed, and these were Germans were considered an officer of, of an officer class, and so um, they uh, they were not put in, in that role of sort of indentured or forced labor, if you will. So it's it, it sounds like almost a sort of creation of the state of exception. Is, is that what? Yeah, 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 it is. It really, so in this sense, Canada is exceptional in everyone interned uh, enemy aliens through, throughout, uh, throughout the war and, and across the globe, if you will. Mm. Where Canada um, um, is set apart from everyone else is they, their, um, their treatment of civilian prisoners of war as forced labor. Germany did uh, use uh, civilians as forced labor, uh, but these were individuals, in effect, who came from the occupied territories in Belgium and, and France. This, however, were in the immigrant settlers. These were your own people that you actually arrested and interned and forced to work. Right. And are these just men um, or are they entire families? Um, the majority of the internees were men, uh, unemployed uh, uh, laborers, to be sure. But uh, provision was made for women folk and children to follow their men into internment. And so there were, um, at Spirit Lake in Quebec, as well as in Vernon, BC, you did have families uh, that, were, uh, that were interned. And so you did have um, sort of the prisoner, in terms of the role, the role numbers, uh, they were uh, given prisoner of war numbers, the women, children. And so um, uh, one of the last um, uh, last sort of few individuals connected to the First World War uh, was in fact a child who was interned in Canada uh, as a prisoner of war. And uh, I believe she had died about three or four years ago. Uh, one of the last remaining sort of connections with the First World War was globally was here in Canada as a child who was interned as a prisoner of war. Wow. Um, were there any ways to get out of the internment camp? I guess what I'm wondering is, um, we talked with Mr. Iwaasa um, a couple episodes ago about Japanese internment during the Second World War, and, and some Japanese men were able to eventually enlist in the armed forces. So I'm wondering, could Ukrainians in internment camps um, enlist in the expeditionary force? Uh, during the First World War in order to get out of the camps or? Uh, no, uh, what we see is the release of these individuals because of the intercession of companies that in effect, just for economic reasons, uh, wanted these individuals to, uh, to fill the uh, sort of the ranks as uh, laborers in their companies uh, chose to enlist overseas, if you will. And what the you capital. find- uh, Yeah, uh, what you find, however, is, is that there were individuals who tried to enlist, uh, a, a sort of a very infamous case was William Perchuluk, uh, who was interned at Castle Mountain uh, at Banff, uh, was released uh, to the Canmore Coal Company, but in fact had suffered from a respiratory ailment, uh, and in effect uh, could not fulfill the obligations of his employment with the company because of the, uh, of the, the disease, if you will, and enlisted. Well, one of the sort of officers from Banff identified him as he uh, was uh, about to um, uh, embark on one of the transport ships uh, and uh, or trains that were embarking, uh, uh, that were, were moving eastward, identified as a former internee and there was a prohibition on, on enemy aliens from, uh, from, from enlisting. And what had happened was uh, he was sent to, down to the to Calgary to the military cells and, and subsequently in a moment of despair, he took his uh, putti from his leg, uh, his leggings uh, uh, and uh, wrapped it around the cell grate and hung himself. And then the argument was who's, who's responsible for the body? Sort of the justice department, the military, uh, so on and so forth. And uh, poor William Perchuluk uh, uh, in effect was, you know, the rather unfortunate circumstances in terms of his demise, but also in terms of his, his burial. 
it's so just cold and transactional yeah. that kind of yeah, yeah. debate happening so what's after the war um and i know you mentioned that prisoners start getting released towards the end because of because now we have labor needs but um, what happens to ukrainians after the war and, and well i guess well yeah, yeah. What, what happens to them so you you're seeing um these individuals are being released and in terms of release they had they actually had to well, they were paroled to, to these companies if you will and so you found many uh, were being sent to up north in northern ontario northern quebec into these uh, these north of lake superior on on railway lines and so on and so forth um still very harsh working conditions and the like and so you're seeing a lot of them sort of um uh, abandon uh, the companies, and the companies try to uh, sort of staunch that flow of these individuals uh, uh, leaving the company, but to no avail. And what you found as a result that most of these individuals sort of went back to the communities and hid for fear of being rearrested, if you will. So you're seeing a lot of these individuals sort of uh, having experienced this sort of um, hiding, uh, changing their names. Uh, and in effect, uh, making sure that they were under the radar in terms of local authority as well. And uh, so this, this is, is the legacy of internment, and it sort of spills over into the post-war pe period, is that these individuals, in effect, were very uh, fearful. Uh, and in fact, there are RCMP reports during the Second World War, which in effect had indicated that that this community was deeply scarred by the internment during the First World War and that they expected no trouble from them, largely because that experience had made such an impression on the community at large. Uh, but everyone, in effect, remained silent. Uh, well, it remained silent largely because it was a bewildering experience. You know, they came uh, in good faith uh, to settle the land. Uh, they held on to the promise of what Canada had to offer. And what you're seeing as a result however, is that betrayal. And there's a sense of, sense of insecurity. There's also a sense of skepticism with respect to what Canada uh, can or could offer and, and what it was capable of doing. More importantly, they've seen it and experienced it with the, uh, themselves. And so uh, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, you're beginning to see the majority of these individuals just simply uh, going about their business few people had mentioned what had happened to them uh, during that uh, during their internment. And yet there were a few, in effect, who had become radicalized. Uh, the, um, the experience, in effect, had radicalized them. And what you're seeing is that huge participation of Ukrainians within uh, the progressive movements uh, in the 19, 19, uh, 1920s and 30s. Uh, uh, large numbers uh, uh, sort of uh, became members of the Communist Party of Canada and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, they and Finns are uh, large ethnic um, uh, communities that were deeply radicalized. Part of it had to do with the internment experience. Part of it had to do also with the attack on uh, on labor activists and, and the like in the latter half of uh, of uh, the internment uh, second phase of the internment experience. Again, I'm I'm thinking to my previous knowledge, and I'd always heard the story of of radicalized Ukrainian Canadians and Finnish Canadians. Um, having to do with what people have described as imported ideas from overseas, um, overseas comrades, rather than, you know, things that the Canadian government did that would, that would push people um, to become radicalized. What about, what about now? How do Ukrainian Canadians today view what happened? You said, you know, briefly after the war, they, they just kind of tried to disappear, but uh, my feeling is that today, maybe looking back, Ukrainian communities view you know, what is to be done maybe a bit differently. Yeah, uh, if I could just return one comment I wanted to, on this notion of radicalization. Um, one of the internees in Canada was Leon Trotsky. Um, he had really? been interned at Amherst at one of the, at one of the uh, he was seized on, uh, on a boat uh, that was uh, making its way to, to, to Europe and he was returning back to participate in the revolution. And he was interned at Amherst. And what you found was that while he was there, he began to um, use his influence and his, his particular skills. Uh, and you saw the radicalization of this element within the Amherst population when the camp closed 
uh, I believe it was in 1917, they were sent to campus casing. And you're seeing uh, these radicalized individuals who were, who were very much uh, disciples of Leon Trotsky um, uh, doing their work uh, in terms of uh, persuading, uh, uh, educating um, uh, individuals who understand that their private struggles were not just simply private struggles, that was part of a larger political struggles. To your question, which is today, today and um, during the late 1980s, uh, the push on was for the government of, of Canada under the Mulroney government to acknowledge, uh, sort of uh, acknowledge other uh, wrongdoing and to own up to uh, what had taken place. In the case of the Japanese Canadian, there was sort of uh, uh, restitution. Properties could never be returned. Uh, properties that had been seized by the, the custodian of enemy alien property uh, and sold. Those properties were long gone. Uh, um, but there was restitution, if you will. And I think that the Ukrainian uh, community, which had been most affected by World War World War One, began spearheading this idea of redress. But redress that uh, was symbolic in nature. I mean, there was no living individual who could sort of uh, lay claim to uh, uh, being personally uh, uh, subjected, uh, although the, the descendants certainly had uh, witnessed the effects of, uh, of internment on their, on, uh, you know, on their, on, uh, you know, in their families, if you will. But the symbolic redress was primarily at education. And so Ukrainians uh, received a, um, a symbolic uh, amount of money that would be held uh, uh, and governed in such a way that uh, the purpose would be to uh, create educational projects and like. And so this has been the case. We, it's the Canadian First World War Internet Recognition Fund, and uh, individuals can apply. And so you're seeing research being done. You're seeing books being written. You're seeing art uh, uh, artworks uh, being conducted and the like. Um, and I think uh, 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 we're seeing this this concerted effort on the part of uh, of Ukrainian Canadians, uh, but others that these are historical wrongs that can and do happen. And the the the, the cliche, but it's, but it's but it's also very true, is that it's, these things are bound to repeat them, uh, be repeated if in effect you're unaware of your history. But I think it goes much deeper than that. It's not just simply a kind of historical remembrance of long ago events. It really speaks to values. It speaks to this idea, this issue about who we are as a people and whether in effect we understand that the very things that bind us together is a sense of uh, obligation and responsibility to each other and to be vigilant uh, when governments adopt sort of policies that at the time may seem convenient and uh, and appropriate, but in the fullness of time really sort of undermine and undercut the, the moral sort of uh, moral content of who we are as a people. And I think that's the importance of redress, that's the importance of education, the importance of historical memory, so that we can sort of uh, lay claim to the sense uh, that this is this is who we are as a people. These are the values that govern us. Um, and this is why we need to remember. Yeah, certainly very wise words for the for the future as as we uh, continue to forge onward in, in in this brave new world of not only COVID but as as international events keep getting more and more complicated, um, and that in turn complicates things for you know overseas diasporic populations that are here um, in Canada. Um, so before we wrap up today, um, Sarah, do you have anything? Do you have anything you'd like to ask, uh, Professor Cordon? Um, yeah, that was. I really enjoyed hearing you talk. Um, I just wanted to ask because, from perhaps like definitely like a student perspective, I'm in high school. Um, I've never heard of this before. Not in any of my classes. Um, and maybe a few things in my personal research, but um, it's so fascinating to me how we're always hearing in school, um, uh, like the multicultural fabric that Canada's built on, that we are a country built of immigrants, but yet when you say the words Canadian, Ukrainian internment camp, you get blank stares because we don't talk about it. We don't understand or we don't hear about it. And I just, I wanted to know 
how did you come upon this topic and like is there any memorials anywhere to anything left or any internment camps left still standing is there anything where we can go to to see this because this is it's a fascinating topic and it's just I, I i very much enjoyed hearing you speak of it yeah those are that's an excellent question i you know it, it's incumbent on all of us to do what we can to recover you know historical memory and it's difficult to do um, part of it has to do with the fact that a lot of personnel files were destroyed by the government under uh, in the 1950s or so, but the files are still there. And it's a question of recreating uh, the story, if you will, the narrative around internment. So I, along with other research, have been doing this diligently. And I think that uh, we do what we can, if you will, but there's been some important other efforts. Uh, for the most part, these camps are no longer in existence. Uh, they've disappeared because they were on the frontier. They're in, in they were in the bush. Um, and so nature has reclaimed a lot of this. There are remnants of these places. You can still see it. And there are archeological uh, digs that are being conducted as we speak uh, to recover some of the artifacts from, from, from the, some of these artifacts find their, found their way to the Museum of Civilization. Um, and, and like, you'll see remnants of barbed wire and like, for the most part, these things have disappeared. There are a number of places that that uh, still stand, uh, uh, but they stand because of uh, of uh, of their sort of national importance to to uh, to issues that are, are totally unrelated to to internment. That is, the Cave and Basin, which was the sort of the birthplace of Canada's national parks. So you have this huge uh, sort of. Uh, uh, sort of rock structure there. And that structure was there at the time of internment. And so the, the government of Canada has in effect created a small museum dedicated to internment uh, in close proximity to uh, um, Cave and Basin. Um, here in Saskatchewan, we're creating a display at the Saskatchewan Railway Museum, which is the site of one of the internment camps. And so the redress fund is being used for to to help um, create this kind of display area in which children or students from essentially from elementary school to high school will visit uh, and make the experience accessible. And all of this is tied into curriculum. And so in Ontario and uh, Alberta, sort of the internment narrative is now being integrated into social studies program around Canadian history, if you will, First World War, and, and linking it to larger questions around sort of um, rights, uh, discriminatory practices, uh, the role of government, uh, and this issue of memory. I was, I was gonna add, as, as you were talking about uh, sites that are kept because they have a larger significance to Canadian history, other than, you know, internment um, in particular, I, I did my undergrad over at Queen's University in Kingston and Fort Henry is right beside the school or more or less right beside the school. Um, fort Henry is this huge fort, which is a great tourism attraction for Kingston. And then teeny tiny in the corner, you have a plaque, um, as you were saying, uh, to Ukrainian Canadians um, interned there. And it made me think of that because I, I always wondered so much history to talk about in terms of internment. Um, and yet Fort Henry is Fort Henry, the, the colonial bastion and, and talking about, um, you know, more more early 1800s, nothing, nothing about the 20th century. Um, yeah. So. Thank you so much for kind of explaining that um, a little bit more. I always kind of wondered about that. Well, might also visit Stanley Barracks, which was the internment facility in Toronto. And uh, there's a plaque there as well, identified as a World War I internment site. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Professor Corden. We're, we're way at the end of our time now, but I, I've learned so much, Sarah. You were saying you, you learned a lot as well. And I think you've definitely given us a lot to think about. Sarah, do you have something to, to add? Um, I'm just, I'm, I've very much enjoyed my time here. I love talking about history because I find, and maybe it's because I'm from not so big of a place, but I can never find um, almost like-minded history people in my own age range. And I love talking about history and learning new things. And I'm just very happy to be here and to learn all about something that I really never knew before. Sarah, these people are out there. 
you just have yeah, to find I'll them. Find them. <laughs> You'll find them. And, and, and this, uh, this venue is exactly the place. And I want to thank mm -hmm. sort of the organizers of the podcast for their efforts and, and to thank them profusely for, for all that they do for Canadian history and, uh -huh. uh, and for the next generation. Thank you again profusely. You've, you've given us so much to think about um, as we continue to unpack the experience of, of marginalized groups in Canada during the first world war on this podcast. Um, what, what really stood out to me most in, in kind of summing everything we talked about is how we might understand the history of internment really from the perspective of, of state labor and population management whereby the First World War itself is, is more of a convenient context, more of a periodization. So it was, it was a great addition to, to the way I've um, thought about the First World War and to the way I think about internment. Um, and and, and I, I hope we'll be able to stay in touch uh, in the future. This marks our last official episode of Beyond the Ridge, Season 2. Brynth and I were very happy to host the season's guests of six students and six invited experts. It's truly been a pleasure getting to chat and learn from everyone. And we want to say thank you to the Vimy Foundation team and to you, our listeners, for joining us throughout this adventure. Stay tuned for more content, surprises may be waiting, and send us your comments. We hope you'll continue to stay with us as we uncover or revisit lesser-known parts of our history together. Signing off for the last time this season, I'm Melanie Ying, and I hope to see you again soon. <laughs>